You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's story about our retired Marine major who has incredible ties to some notable veterans organizations. We'll get to that coming up in a moment. Uh, one, we hope everybody's staying safe out there. We know that COVID is sort of resurging, and no, this isn't a political statement. We just hope everybody is staying safe and being smart and staying healthy. So we're wishing you all the best on that front as well. Want to remind you guys about all of our social media sites. Please follow us there. Keep up with the show, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, go to our website, hazardground.com. Of course, you can listen to all the old episodes there. Um, and our Amazon promotion is on our website. Go to the bottom of the homepage and click on the Amazon button or under the Sponsors tab as well. Then you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. By the way, it works the same on your smartphone. If you go to hazardground.com on your smartphone, it'll redirect you right to the app so all your credit card information is saved, really user-friendly. And very, very easy. Speaking of our website where you get all the old episodes, if you guys are watching this on our YouTube channel, thank you so much. Subscribe there. Don't forget to subscribe to Killcliff's YouTube channel as well. Download the Killcliff app, Killcliff TV, where you can get all of our episodes as well to watch them. So we certainly appreciate you guys supporting both the Hazard Ground and Killcliff together. And then finally, uh, don't forget about our Apple reviews. We continue to grow and continue to get up the top 100 podcast chart, but we need more Apple reviews. So please go on Apple and leave a short review. Give us five stars. Who knows? We may even post your review on our social media sites, but it certainly will help us grow this podcast and get more and more people in touch with the Hazard Ground community and tell some more of these great stories. Now onto this week's episode that features over a 20-year member of the United States Marine Corps. He's a retired major. He's been both enlisted and an officer. Obviously, he has multiple deployments, multiple combat deployments, but several other ones overseas, including Operation Iraqi Freedom. He also serves as the president of Ainsley's Angels of America, and a special advisor to many other adaptive sports organizations. He has a really cool story I'll tell you about in a moment in reference to Ainsley's Angels, but he's also a Spartan leader with the Travis Mannion Foundation, and we welcome him. He is Major Retired Kim Rooster Rossiter joining us on the Hazard Ground. Rooster, we'll call you Rooster affectionately. Thank you for being here. Brother Mark, thank you for this opportunity. Let's dance, man. No, absolutely. It's great. I do want to mention this. You actually... um, also uh, built a wheelchair that T. Fred Harvey, a World War II Iwo Jima Marine, used to roll all 26 miles of the Marine Corps Marathon, which is absolutely outstanding. So just incredible work there, brother. Yeah, man, really appreciate you highlighting that. Watching Fred cross that finish line after he did 26.1 of the miles virtually, he hopped up, man, and he got up there and he says, I am resilient. I'm going to charge this hill. And he crossed that thing, man, and just... Oh, thanks for highlighting that. What a journey. Yeah, Such an honor. Absolutely. So it's great that we have that connective tissue all together. So, uh, but let's go back to the beginning for you. And how'd you get in the Marine Corps? Well, my dad was in the army and, and I said, Hey, you know, what's up? I'm going to go to LSU, be a fighting tiger. He's like, yeah, maybe <laughs> I want to look at some other things. And I'm like, well, what are you thinking? You know, what, what's up? He's like, well, I can tell you this. The military is a young man's decision. And I was like, hmm, what are you like pontificating here? What are you trying to tell me? He's like, well, when you're 40, you can't join the military. 
It's a young man's decision. Okay, let me go check this out. So that's what started it. And there's a whole story about going down to the recruiting station and seeing, you know, the Air Force recruiter who said, we're good on our quotas, Jarhead, look like you want to be guy, you, you go over here. So the Air Force was basically like, we don't need you. And then I went to the Navy office and the chief, I mean, I love my Navy brothers, I love them. But in 1993, the chief, he was just kind of chilling, man, had his feet up on the desk and maybe had his shirt unbuttoned and i was just like uh this probably isn't it then i walked out of the recruiting office man i looked up and there he was six foot three 240 pounds dress blues marine corps sergeant i was like bro that's what i want (laughs) he's like you do you even have what it takes to join this brotherhood come in here son and you know the rest is history man yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, totally. I can relate. Uh, that's how people looked at me, except minus the six, three part and a Marine and built and everything else. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've inspired many along the way uh, as, as the army got a lot shorter once I joined anyway, uh, regardless. Um, but you're, so your, your, your dad didn't care that you were, you were not going to be in the army that you were going to go Marine Corps. He was supportive of it the whole way. Yeah. Yeah. He was really supportive. You know, when we talked and danced deeply and really dove in on the army concept, I, I, of course, have a lot of brothers that are Army veterans and friends, um, and so never would I disrespect them. But taking me back to that 1993 conversation, my dad said that the Army is a big place and that in that journey, you become one of many. And for whatever reason, he wanted to tell me that it coincided or countered the Marine Corps idea of the few and the proud. So there was something from a marketing standpoint that really worked on me. And I was like, I, I really am challenged by this idea of being one of the few, you know, like kind of like our, our, our special operations brothers, you know, who are driven for all their own regions. But ultimately, like a hundred try out, one might make it, you know, we're talking about things like buds and, and ranger, you know, et cetera, across that spectrum. So, I mean, maybe some of that was in, 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 in motivated me, but ultimately my dad was excited. He was just excited at the idea of we were having the conversation and that I was listening to the fact that it is a young man's decision. Of course, it's a young woman's decision too, but in that conversation, it was a young man's decision. Uh, a few good men. Um, 1992 came out. Clearly, you wanted to be Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, obviously, right? That was a major influence. <laughs> I mean, I knew I could handle the truth. I just That's didn't right. know whether or not. <laughs> so you're off to boot camp. Um, I mean, obviously, you have a little bit of a background of understanding what it's like, but was there any surprises there for you? Uh, the surprise was how well I think I was able to just immerse myself in the process, um, going in with a complete and utterly open mind and just pouring everything that I had within both mentally, physically, emotionally into the process. I'll tell you what the surprise was, Mark. The surprise was in late September ish when the major league baseball decided we were going on strike. Yeah. I, I crushed my heart. Yeah. Like all I could remember was I was waiting for October to watch the beautiful things that is MLB in October. Cause that's when I graduated, was going to graduate. And when I got that Sunday newspaper clipping, man, you talk about crushing young man to the point where I think I've watched one full baseball game since then. And I was all in. So that was a surprise. And I know that's not the answer you were looking for, but it kind of reinforces, or it's going to, it kind of is a little foreshadowing and ultimately what my life then began, you know, as life continued to go down this road of, not ever really knowing what you could have happened to you in any given moment. 
and then the challenge of how you respond to that. So for me, it's taken a lot of reflection to ultimately say, you know what, I, I can give baseball a chance again, but it took a lot of healing, right. like many other things. After basic, what happens next for you? Yeah, you go to Marine combat training and then you make your way to Virginia for intel training. And so, you know, here's this so wait, Southern educated. You, you were in intel. Did you know, is that what you wanted to do or did you test into that? Yeah, I wanted to do it. Okay. Um, part of the conversation about joining the Marine Corps was wanting to be an FBI agent. And the, and so I did have a meeting with the FBI guy prior to go, going to the recruiter's office. I left that part out. And uh, he basically said, hey, look, if you want to join the club, um, the keys is go get a four-year degree in accounting or go into intelligence in the military. The Marine Corps might be the preferred option, but all intel, all military would be good. And of course, I'm scratching my head at that point. I'm like, accounting yeah that's what i'm thinking right now like why does how does accounting work for the fbi well think about it man all of the things that happen by way of the numbers and the and the the way that people move things white collar crime um just all of those things that the jurisdiction of the fbi encounters um that we don't really think about it on a regular basis but it had to do with understanding the numbers yeah but that's why we have that's why don't we pay the irs for that like and i feel like we're kind of getting double tapped here i took accounting in college it sucked yeah yeah i i think um i i'm out of my my league right now bro so i can't tell you i don't i don't know sure that's why we have the irs bro i don't okay. know <laughs> All right, just that's just what the dude told me i'll have to start asking some fbi people i know how much how much accounting background they have neither here nor there um yeah. all right so you go to intel school right yeah yeah. And then, and then after that, over to Okinawa, Japan, which was a great way to kind of kick off the career. I mean, it caught all ties back to, you know, if you're ever feeling homesick, um, <laughs> you, you just figure out how to get over that because you're right. going off on a, an island in the middle of the Pacific. And this is really before the internet. So there wasn't any FaceTime mom or it was all the old fashioned write letters process. Yeah. Okinawa. And, uh, and then eventually during that, that journey, um, I'll never forget the master guns came in. He goes, what are you still doing here? This is like right before, you know, uh, New Year's break, 94 into 95. No, 95, 96. I said, what are you, what are you talking about, master guns? The Lance Corporal doesn't understand, you know, why, what are my students still doing here? I'm, I'm at work. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, uh, you're supposed to be on a plane. We got you a seat. You're going to survival, evasion, resistance, escape, also known as SEER school in nice. California. And you need to check in tomorrow. <laughs> what? So, yeah, anyway, that happened which turned out to be just an amazing deep dive, some heavy lifting on how to uh, overcome some of those challenges. Yeah. Met, and that was my first introduction really to the joint world because it was a joint school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was really, really, really cool as a young, young Marine to be exposed to that. But then I went home on leave and I was out, uh, a buddy was getting married and that was my turn to be the tall guy with the dress blues. So I go to the wedding. Right. And then I'm rolling into the club afterwards, still wearing the dress blues because, you know, that's what we do. Yeah. And uh, and there's this lady that walks up and she said, oh, my God, you know, how you doing? What's happening? And I know her, of course, but it's my it's my current wife's cousin. Anyway, she says, hey, um, have you seen Lori since you've been in? And I'm like, uh, no, I haven't. I mean, I heard she was getting married. How's that going? She goes, oh, no, she called that off. So that then created a whole nother story that's not for this podcast, but ultimately <laughs> led to us getting married and uh, the rest is kind of history on that, um, which, which wouldn't happen if Master Guns wouldn't have sent me to survival school, right? That's crazy. And, and oh, by the way, I mean, there are very few regrets I have in my military career. The, the, I wish somebody had told me earlier on in my career about Sears School. Uh, that is the one school I wish I could have gone to. 
I think that as much as there's, you know, there's ranger school, there's assessment selection, clearly there's all the special ops schools. But if you're not going down that road still, um, SEER school, I think it's just an incredible test of your mettle uh, and an incredible test of uh, that whole hypothetical. What would you do in a certain situation? And you think you know how you'd react, but yeah, you kind of find out how you really react. Yeah, not to jeopardize the integrity of the program, but I think I'm safe in telling this story. When the lady reached up, as actually she didn't have to reach up. I'm on my knees. I'd just been captured sometime in the previous hour. And the lady starts to rub my head and say, it's going to be okay. And before I even knew it, Mark, bow, bow, right? What in the world? Like total change of everything my mind thought was happening to suddenly, this is not a safe place. She controls me. I am have to submit to this or not. What do you do? Wild stuff. I could go on about that experience, yeah. but you are right. I, I mean, I, I remember a buddy of mine who I deployed with um, had told me he went to Sears school and he told me this story about how um, they had kept him awake for about, you know, you know, over 24 hours straight. Um, and they had offered him, uh, you know, they sat him down at a table and they put, a piece of paper in front of him and asked him to sign it. They offered him a cup of coffee and breakfast and everything else. And he had, he said he hadn't eaten in probably like a day and a half. And they asked him to sign this piece of paper. And basically the statement saying is that, Oh, I'm, I'm not here against my will. And you know, um, the United States are the oppressors, this, that, and the other. And he turned around and he told me they put the cup of coffee down in front of me. I took the pencil, snapped it in half and smacked the cup of coffee away. Right. And he was like, I ain't signing this. And then all of a sudden he said he got the crap beat out of him for the next 30 straight minutes for the next yeah. 30 straight. minutes. I'm like, yeah, that's a, you know, that's when you're refusing sort of a semi olive branch only to get your ass kicked. I mean, it's just that kind of intensity that I think me personally, not, enjoy is not the right word. I, I would have loved to have seen how I would have survived that. You know, yeah. um, I, I think it's yeah. a great test. Anyway, different discussion, but yeah. it, it really is. But I'll conclude it with saying when you feel tears coming down your face and you're not crying, but your body is releasing because of the emotions within literally a physical, emotional release. Again, though, you're not crying. It's a mind trick, man. Oh God! And to be there, I'm so grateful to have been moved to that point. Cause it's, it's something that I'll keep with me forever. And it just, it emboldens and strengthens and, and kind of gives you a different set of tools in a toolbox as you navigate the rest of your life. But anyway, great awesome. training. Awesome. Um, all right. So I don't want to fast forward too far, but where are you on nine 11? <laughs> I just finished grad school, man. So at some point the Marine Corps decided to send me to the national intelligence university to where I received an undergraduate degree. And then this is post Kosovo pre nine 11. So I actually applied and was accepted me and a seal brethren uh, to stay on and do the master's program. So on the Friday before nine 11, uh, we graduated. So here I am master's degree in strategic intelligence. I know all right. I uh, needed to get leave papers that Tuesday. The leave papers were up at DC at the Navy Annex next to the Pentagon Marine Corps headquarters back then. Um, long story short, I never went up 995 that day um, because what happened happened. So I was in Stafford, Virginia, to answer your question, uh, awaiting officer candidate school. Okay. Um, what? So as part of going to OCS, 
Was that part of all the intelligence stuff? Was it like all one package deal that they offered you? Or did you on your own decide you wanted to go to OCS? Yeah, Officer Candidate School is separate completely from all things my enlisted service. Um, in the Marine Corps, you apply to go to Officer Candidate School uh, and, and, and seek the opportunity to be accepted to, 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 you know, to test for commissioning or to earn your commissioning. Um, and there's multiple programs. So the one that I did was the enlisted commissioning program, which essentially is once you have a degree and you meet the rest of the requirements, uh, you can apply with the right you know, background and recommendations and the likes. Um, if accepted, you then go to officer candidate school uh, and then you would follow up. That's a 10 to 12 week process. And then you go to the basic school, just like all Marine officers. Does that, does that answer your question? No. Yeah. I just, I was yeah, curious cool. kind of what, what your process was as far as deciding yeah. to go be an officer as opposed well, to. Well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the decision had everything to do with impact. So, and, and this is never to say that you can't have a wide ranging impact as a gunnery sergeant, master sergeant or master gunnery sergeant. I would never say that. So I'm not saying that. But as I as I examined my Marine Corps career up until that point, which was focused on the ground and aviation side of the house, I noticed in the latter years, aviation intel was fairly new. Um, and aviation intel had a lot of uh, lieutenants that were coming out of the Naval Intelligence Basic course. So that's what the Marine Corps did back then. They sent their lieutenants to Navy intel course to then be air intel officers, which it was us making the best of the situation. But in doing so, I... And I never want to disrespect a person, but but I had a chance to come across about 10 to 15 of these lieutenants. And I think three of them were amazing. The rest of them were suboptimal. And I felt like if we continue down this course of having suboptimal leaders in these roles, it's going to produce a suboptimal support to the warfighter. And so the biggest impact that I thought I could have was if I just jumped in and tried to, quote, fix or be part of the solution by becoming an aviation intel officer, which is what I ended up doing. And ultimately, as, as we fast forward very briefly, I actually took over the course that the Marine Corps now has called the Aviation Intel Officers course that produces today's aviation intel officer Marines. So it, it turned out to be something way bigger than I ever thought it could be, but the right decision to have the largest impact. That's awesome. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's super um, blessed. How because of nine eleven does it delay your start at OCS? Mm. Yeah, no, not really. Okay. Um, officer candidates training as well as boot camp continued to execute the whole process. Um, I, I remember driving to OCS on October seventh. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is the day tour Boris started. Yep. So it was a Sunday, and I was which is also the same day I graduated Marine boot camp as an enlisted Marine, and it's my dad's birthday. And I could go on because it was my my frock date to major. But something weird about 10-7. Anyway, um, I was driving. NPR News was on the radio. And the announcement came over sometime between 11.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. on Sunday, October 7th, Tora Bora started. And so that right there um, made it that much more real. Like we're in, we're in it and we're executing and there's business that needs to be done and people that need to be uh, need to be led and, and people I need to support. So, yeah, uh, it was real. When you finish officer candidate school, where are you going next? And how much uh, at OCS did you get from your instructors? Hey, you're going down range, you're going down range. This is what's happening kind of deal. 
there was a lot of discussion about the real world aspect of things, keeping mm-hmm. in mind that like officer candidate school is in Northern Virginia and you can see airplanes going to Dulles, going to Reagan and like super weird stuff, man, at, at you know, Firewatch at, at zero one and you're out in the field and you look up and you see a plane flying over it's in, and you think of nine 11, you, you see, it, and then you're hearing, you know, a lot of the news reports about anthrax was in the mail. Bring I'm bringing you back here, man, but yeah, you remember that yeah. stuff, you know? And so you're, it's real and we're being attacked. And the, 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 the professionalism of the Marine Corps uh, officer candidate school staff was above reproach as they, they didn't play games. It wasn't, like, hey, you know, because I remember one, at one point in training well well before somebody was in some training, they're like, yeah, the North Koreans just attacked. And it was all to kind of test the students and to kind of see how you react to it. But like not there was no games being played at Officer Canada School or the basic school, which follows OCS. Um, and so to answer your question, um, which essentially was, you know, how much insight did you have and you are going downrange? And the answer is yes. They were very transparent about that. Very, very transparent. How long is it between OCS and your basic course? Like, when do you actually get back to the fleet? I'd say that depending on your MOS, from the day you go, MOS, your military occupational specialty, your job, depending on what you um, are placed in, that I'd say it's a year from the day you go to OCS to the day you get to the operating forces. Okay. It could be shorter. It could be longer pilots, longer pipeline, you know, where did you end up year. after the basic course for you? After uh, my first landing spot was Marine Air Group 26, which is all helicopters at Marine Corps Air Station, New River. Um, by this point, Iraq had kicked off and Marine Air Group 26 and the second Marine aircraft wing in conjunction with the second Marine expeditionary force has been, was tapped to take over essentially called the second rotation into El Anbar. Um, as as MNF West, um, if that if that if all that language makes sense, no, it, and that's in multinational forces MNF for the civilians listening. So, and then and that's exactly what happened. So we be, we essentially then became a large the Marine Corps structured. You have MAGTAF Marine Air Ground Task Force, mm-hmm. and the Marine Air Ground Task Force is scalable and flexible to fish the mission, fit the mission or the task at hand, and. The MAF or the Marine Expeditionary Force essentially brings with it the components of the Marine Air Ground Force. We ended up becoming the air combat element of the Marine Expeditionary Forces effort out west. And again, I don't want to get too technical, but that's that's what ended up ultimately happening in 2005. So is your first deployment uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom? My first combat deployment was uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom to El Assad to support the effort um, out west, and this was right around. Uh, this is um, this is pre pre Fallujah. So that'd be right? 04. Yeah, oh four. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and again, just sort of historical background. You know, uh, when you mentioned pre Fallujah, didn't really start to get bad until oh five. Uh, into 06 and 07 when the surge happened. Um, And Fallujah is still only about maybe 45 minutes west of Baghdad. So it's not like west-west, but it was considered west Al-Ambar province out there in western Iraq. Um, And and it was just divided that way geographically for whatever reason the Army planners or military planners, Department of Defense planners um, made it that way. Um, I had to drive out there a couple of times, probably some of the scariest, you know, times on the roads I've had in, in my deployment. But when you get there, um, again, I know you're doing air-related stuff, but sort of what's the mission for you guys? 
Yeah, I mean, it is all pure air assault, but we also had fixed wings. So we had the F-18s that were carrying out a lot of lightning pod hits and UAVs were really coming up on the scene there. So a lot of surveillance and then support with um, with uh, Al-Adid, Al-Adid uh, which was providing a lot of the, the theater air um, specifically by way of like joint stars and again, some of the more theater and national UAVs. But you know what, though, man, while we say we were air uh, and we were air, um, a lot of what was happening is we were trans- being transitioned to support a lot of convoys. So you really had to have good idea and good essay of what's happening on the grounds. IEDs are real, um, you know, Michigan and 10 and all the ASRs and all of these things, mm-hmm. but also support to the outposts. And hey, by the way, you got to you got to defend yourself. So at this point, we started getting indirect fire um, and it was happening every other two or three days. Um, and I could go into a whole story about how how we, we used Intel to drive operations to ultimately find the damn washing machine timer that was set up on a rack that they were launch, launching this shit from the, I'm sorry, I'm cursing. You That's okay. up here. <laughs> they were launching it from what they, what we called the ball sack. Cause as you looked at the river, it came down like this and they were sitting it right here in no man's land. And they were just lodging these one Oh sevens, one twenty twos, and fucking just blowing shit up. And, and you want to talk about not knowing if you have PTSD till you really figure it out. And it's when your son Eight years later, it's taking a water bottle. Some wild shit, bro. Somebody, somebody's gonna relate to this. Takes a water bottle. Remember the water bottle flip game? Yeah. He'd flip that shit. And he'd flip it, man. And I couldn't see it. And, and then I hear boom. And he'd be doing it. And, and I finally lost my shit one day. And it was the second time I ever responded like with a lot of just like rage. Um, the first time was when some rafters fell in 2006, but that's another story. And I was like, what the F, you know, what are you doing? Like, stop. Running in and, and she's, and I'm, I'm, I'm shaking telling you this story. And she's like, what's wrong? What are you doing? Why are you hollering in the sun? And, and I literally just start, I just broke down because I'm an aviation Intel officer who did freaking a tour at El Assad and some other things around the country. I'm not, you know, the gunnery sergeant who pulled his brother out of the shit or, or saw someone take rounds through the head from a sniper. But at the end of the day, like I realized in that moment, years later, that the indirect fire happening to our base in 20, 2004 and the way that we figured out how to find those bastards all resonated back to my son now flipping a water bottle and me flipping out because shit, the damn water bottle's indirect fire. It gets released, it goes up and it falls where it wants to fall. And it's never until you actually have that experience mm-hmm. where you realize, oh my God, we are so shaped by our experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to take No, story, no. It's, I mean, to relate, I had my first deployment was much more combat oriented than my second one was. But I had a PTSD issue with my second deployment because of the JDAM. So we were there for the closeout of Iraq in 2011. And for those who don't know what a JDAM is, it's like this huge sort of R2D2 looking thing with a gun on the end of it that spins around in a circle. It's able to detect mortars that are incoming. And when a mortar would come, it would make this alarm sound. It would go, ah, 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 and then you hear, because it would be firing rounds at any incoming mortars. It was actually pretty effective for the most part. But um, there were a lot of times where that things would happen. It would go overhead and you'd hear that alarm go, ah, ah, ah. and I remember I had gotten back and I was back to work for my first week. And the iPhone if it has this like alarm on it. That does the same thing. And somebody had it as their text message tone. And when I tell you it went off and I literally dove underneath the desk out of sheer reaction, like just did one of those and dove underneath the desk because 
As soon as it went off, everybody jumped up from whatever they were doing, ran to a bunker, got in a ball, and just waited. In case the JDAM didn't pick up the mortar and it got through, you better be inside a cement something if you'd like to live. Because the 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 chews, the containerized housing units, were, you know, it was aluminum. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a very similar story that I had the same sort of just unannounced reaction to something. It's wild, man. I, thanks for sharing that, bro. Like, I really think there's some people that are listening to your story and they're going to they're gonna be like, okay, now I get that. Or, or I had that too. And I, I think that's the beauty of what y'all are doing, man. Hazard Ground is doing amazing things by bringing us together and letting us have just these raw conversations. I almost feel like I'm in a therapy session with my brother I've never met, but that we have so many things in common um, and, and just dancing together here, it's, it's beautiful, Mark. So again, thanks for this opportunity and, and really thanks for what y'all are doing to bring everybody together to have these stories and, and to, to demonstrate how we've overcome through resilience and positive mindsets. And the love here is real, bro. So thank uh, you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, unfortunately, I've got like a dozen more examples of that, but you know, it's neither here nor there. Sure. <laughs> sort of comes with the territory. Well, sure. Um, and I'm sure yeah, the, ra- the rafter, right. I'm sorry. I was going to say the raft, the rafter story was me under a table too. So like, I can totally relate when you were saying under a table, I mean, they dropped, they were doing construction. They dropped, they dropped them off, you know, for the next day to put them on it. Boom. Oh shit. It was under the table. My wife's like, Oh my God. My wife in that moment's like, this is real. Like, Holy shit. Like that's ooh. anyway. Yeah. yeah lots of stories, brother. So, yeah. um, that deployment though, I mean, how does it, the operational tempo, was it more than what you expected? Mm, great question. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was 16-hour days at least, which means that you had eight hours off, but you were never off. So when you when you were off, you were trying to decompress. You were back in your aluminum can, as you alluded to. Uh, you're trying to get a shower. You know, you try to get some PT in. Um, and then there's an indirect fire event or there's an issue that you need to go back because, you know, aircraft's down and we need to, you know, respond to the trap or the seesaw opportunity. Uh, uh, or finally you're in the groove here and, and you're, and you're doing what you got to do. And then a Marine gets a message from home, you know, that, you know, something happened or, you know, you know what I mean? Like none of this is, none, this is just the nature of what we do. Right. So this, none of this is being said and sought of sympathy or some type of, you know, oh my God, that must have really sucked. Yeah, it sucked. And yeah, it was beyond what we expected. But you'll concur with me. Like, if you're anything like me, which I think you are, we're always on. Mm-hmm. We're always on. Well, and that's so part of that is a conversation we've had a lot is about taking a knee. You know, like even when we don't want to take a knee or we don't think we need a knee, someone needs to tell us to take a knee and get us out of commission because you have to turn that off because you can't always be on for that extended period of a time without it having a negative effect on you. And the Travis Manion foundation experience that I just did two weeks ago out in Colorado at Tasha's place, you know, Brian and Sean Tosh, I don't know if you know, Brian, I'm sure mm-hmm. if you haven't, um, he has a crooked butterfly ranch and he took us out there and we talked a lot about checking in same concept, take a knee and check in with yourself. Like, where are you in this journey? Like you're being consistent and, and, and intentional in your execution, but have you taken the time really to check in or take a knee and say, are you okay? And so we went out there and we all got off the grid. There were 16 of us and we had a chance to really do some heavy emotional lifting and, and deep dive on some conversations. But the preponderance of us had a chance in that moment to do what you just said, to take a knee, to reflect, to share. And 
it was a Jimmy V thing, man. Jimmy V said, right. Be moved Mm -hmm. to the point of tears every day. He said that in his SB speech moved. I was moved to the point of tears every day out there watching the sunrise over the, over the horizon there overlooking Boulder and just all the things that that sun represented. Um, just uncontrollable, just release a loud cry for like 45 seconds. And I think that's part of taking a knee. And sometimes we can't be vulnerable. We refuse to be vulnerable until we get the value of vulnerability and how our vulnerability can be inspiring to others to allow them to join you in your vulnerabilities and and see that as a strength. Saying I love you, you know, or saying I'm sorry, or saying I need to take a knee those are vulnerable acts because we don't know how the other person's going to respond. Sure. But once we can get comfortable being vulnerable, man, Mark, that's the key to healing. And then that's the key to helping others heal. So anyway, I, I again, we keep going on down these places and I love no, the nature, I mean, the natural. Yeah. It's fun. They're all, all conversations that we love to have here on the show. So yeah. uh, after the deployment, um, what's next for you from a career standpoint? Well, I had, I should say that during that deployment is when my wife wrote me a letter saying that something wasn't right with Ainsley, my middle born child's mm-hmm. progression, uh, that she still wasn't walking or standing. Um, and that started what became a 24 month process of trying to figure out what that was about. So I just want to throw that in there and put it on hold. Oh, for yeah. a minute. We'll come no, back that, to well, that. I mean, what was it about? Well, I mean, she ended up 24 months later being diagnosed with a terminal progressive disorder called infantile neuroaxonal dystrophy, which uh, ultimately took her life in 2016. And then at the same time inspired this whole new life uh, for my wife and I and my family and all that Ainsley's Angels has become. And the fact that I now get to be the president of her legacy is it's just something beautiful that I cherish. But as I reflect back on that letter, and the follow-on phone call with her while in Iraq, um, it takes me back to a place of just real uncertainty, real, um, like, what do you mean? Like, wh- wh- why Why would she have any issues? Like, she's amazing. She's strong. She's, she's Ainsley, right? Um, but that started that clock. And, and meanwhile, the Marine Corps then, we came back from deployment, and then I had orders and was selected to go be the uh, deputy intel officer on the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, which we rolled right into workups. And and eventually, from a career standpoint, um, the next step was another deployment on the USS Bataan. Uh, OEF focused a lot of uh, East Africa support and execution. But it was during that deployment, Mark, where I got the phone call. And the phone call was from my wife that said that they had confirmed after a five, four to five month test of a nerve biopsy that she had indeed has INAD. INAD is something that attacks the nervous system globally. Toxins grow up, grow on the system, and, and, and the body can't release those toxins uh, because of uh, two mutated genes. So now we have the realism that I gave her a bad gene and so did my wife. And there's only seven cases in America at this time. So like, there's not a whole lot of research that's going into it. And it's so rare. And, and now you're just going through this denial phase, but you're in the middle. For anybody that knows the world, this is HOA 3. This is Horn of Africa 3 is what the logisticians call it. Like you're not going to just go home today. Like I didn't make it home for another probably 30 or 40 days, but you then were in a position where you want to support your wife and hold her, but you can't. 
but you're also going through your own denial and, oh my gosh, what is this? You're telling me that my daughter's going to die in the next couple of years. What is that? What is that? That is that. So you go through this whole thing. And I went to, I, I went to faith first. I went to the chaplain on the, on the ship who was a Catholic father. He handed me a book. He says, when bad things happen to good people, I looked at the book, I've turned it over. It was written by a rabbi. I looked back up at the priest, looked back at the book. He goes, just read the book. And it was, it was pretty special to see that at the end of the day, we're all human and, and whether or not we believe in this faith or that faith or this belief structure, ultimately bad things do happen to good people. And it's really how you choose to frame it and how you choose to go forward with it. So I spent a lot of time leaning on my brothers and sisters in the Navy and Marine Corps, um, having deep conversations doing some reading, self-reflecting. It was during Lent as a Catholic man, I spent a lot of time on my knees trying to just accept it. And uh, that's not easy um, to accept it. And I'm saying the obvious, but think about it. How do you accept that your daughter's going to die and you're going to watch it happen? How do you accept that? Um, I, I don't know how you accept that, Mark, but I can tell you that somehow along the way, I got to a point where I, I decided not to stay under a rock, right? Get out from under the rock and go forth and she wants to live, right? So let's let's make sure she can live the best life that she can. And that's what we did, man. And I could go into all the things that we did, but I'll, I'll ultimately say that that moment was a defining moment personally, professionally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. I made my way back home and the Marine Corps then sent us um, to Virginia. Where, where I ended up taking over that course that had just gotten started to do aviation intel training and, and then became the, the person in charge of all, I had a company command of all the enlisted Marines going through intel training. And that's when we found that Ainsley liked to, the feeling of the wind in her face when she was out for a run. And uh, just, just remembering that day is uh, pretty damn special man, because she couldn't speak. She couldn't say a word, right? And she couldn't walk. But when the wind hit her face and it just lit up, she said, without saying a word, I want to do more of this. And I like this. And I feel free and empowered. And I quickly said, well, I'm going to become a runner for my daughter. You could say, well, you're a Marine. <clears throat> you run all the time. No, that's not true. Marines run back then six miles a year. That was your two PFTs. <laughs> So I became a runner for a man and like the Marine Corps was really good. The exceptional family member program is a legit thing. Um, I'm a big fan of it. If you got anybody who's listening to this right now, who, who has a family member with any type of exceptional diagnosis, I'm, I'm here for you. Shoot me a line. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out how you can get out from under your rock or you can make their lives empowered that much more. And this isn't a pitch for Ainsley's angels, but, but it's, but it's a, a downright promise that if you are finding yourself confused about how to care for your great grandmother, or your mom who has Alzheimer's or your friend that has down syndrome and you don't know how to do stuff with them. Angels angels has that for you. So we started running man and we ended up doing a hundred races across the course of her life. And her final race was the Marine Corps marathon 2015. The irony of it is it was our hundredth race. It finishes at the Iwo Jima Memorial statue. The, the, the flag raising on Mount Suribachi happened on February 23rd of 45. I would have never imagined 
because nobody knows, right? But Ainsley passed away on February 23rd of 2016, same day of the raising of the flag. And those, there's so many pieces to that. Just like, it was like her final hurrah. Like she was just like, she was making a statement as she exited to say, now it's time for the legacy. Um, I remember carrying her down the stairs to the, to the car that ultimately took her to, uh, to the, to the funeral home and kissing her on the head as, as the last time I saw her. And it was this energy, man, that was like so sad and somber, but so powerful by way of just this level of love and strength and almost a, a debt of gratitude that she shared with me in that moment to say, thanks dad. But like, it was weird for me because I, I want to thank her. And, it, and have you ever been in a relationship with someone where all you want to do is thank them and all they want to do is thank you? When you have that level of gratitude for one another, like you can move mountains. And that's, that's what drives me every day, man. So I, I got off track. You asked me a question. About no, you didn't. You, you didn't get off track at all. I mean, it's part of your story. Um, one, again, you know, uh, just incredibly sorry for your loss. Um, but, you know, when you talk about Ainsley, it, your, your whole demeanor and your voice changes. Um, and and it, it is almost in that angelic spirit that uh, she lifts you up in that sense. And, and the pain is unimaginable and, and no parent should ever have to go through it. I as one, you know, as a parent. And it's, it's funny. It's a pain you only can empathize with once you have kids. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where you just run from the thought of that pain and the people who've had to go through it. Um, no, no greater loss than that. So uh, my heart yeah. goes out to you, your wife and your entire family uh, for everything that you had to go through. But the, the challenge of keeping her spirit alive and, and her memory uh, and everything that she meant to everybody um, is something that truly uh, is a lifelong journey, right? Um, because that is as much as she can't be here with you every single day, there's something that, that you bring back to life for her. It's beautifully said. Um, and every single day I refer to something called magic, which is an acronym that stands for my active grieving instills courage. And so that doesn't just apply to a dad that lost his daughter. It applies to any, any human who has ever lost someone that they love or cared for, or, or it's, you have to grieve it and you have to grieve it actively. And so when I can get moved within, as I reflect and relate that's me actively grieving in a public forum to you, Mark, and to all of whoever's watching, but I'm doing it for me in that moment to instill courage to continue to carry our legacy. And as I go in this journey and have a chance to see these you know, 30,000 members of our Angels Angels family across the country, these caregivers that are pouring their everything into those that they care for, it, it's all inspiring. And sometimes they have to take a knee. And so to be there to empathize and to provide them some things to consider based on our journey and Ainsley's journey, you got to be vulnerable and open to that in order to then give them the courage to go forward. The Travis Manion Foundation has given me a chance to connect with Gold Star families, specifically the spouses of about six fallen brothers, ranging from Black Hawk helicopter crashes to some really serious mental health ultimate demises um and the level of empathy that you can have for someone with someone when you've had grief that hurts you to your core is pretty powerful but you can't harness and leverage it 
I don't think, unless you truly can understand how to actively grieve it and have the courage to then have that empathy and to relate and to get to dance emotionally about how it feels. Keeping in mind, brother, that like my wife responded totally different to Ainsley's passing. And, and, and or you got to remember, you grieve the diagnosis, you grieve watching them die, you yeah. grieve the day they die. I can't assume that we all grieve the same way. In fact, many people don't grieve. They bottle it up to keep it inside. They curse, they blame, they say, why us, right? That kind of stuff, you got to respect that process. But ultimately, like everybody's going to grieve differently. And I guess my ask or my mission or my my what I want to just give is the courage to others to actively grieve and to have magic in their lives. Because once you witness somebody actually turn that valve on of actively grieving, man, they're unstoppable, bro. They're unstoppable because they harness the spirit of that person they loved. Anyway, I don't think this podcast was about grief. No, but, but I mean, but, listen, as part of your story, I, I did want to ask you sort of concurrently about um, with everything going on with your daughter at the time, was the Marine Corps a hindrance? I know you mentioned how much the, 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 the family Marine Corps Family Foundation supported you guys, but yeah. in retrospect, you know, was being in the Horn of Africa when some of this stuff was going down, did it make it harder, easier? Was it a way to kind of escape from the reality of it? Yeah, there was definitely it. And that was the idea. We can't get you home right now, but we're going to go ahead and send you on this small boat into that African safari on that John boat to get that small prop plane to make your way ultimately to Cutter, you know, to go and do site survey on the Oman border. What, 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 what the F are you talking about? Like my daughter just died or is, is diagnosed with this thing. She wasn't dead yet, but just the formal diagnosis. But the leadership structure in that moment was... There's nothing you can do right this minute back in, in North Carolina. So let's continue to do what we came here to do. And let's get you engaged until you hit that point where you can't focus on anything else. And I applaud the leadership decision there to do that. I had to be okay with it, right? If I, if I would have looked at him and been like, I'm broke, send me home. But, but, but shit, man, Travis Mannion said, if not me, then who? That's the mantra of the Travis Mannion Foundation. If, if ever did I just now have a revelation for how I can relate to that, it was the moment when I was the right guy for the job, had been trained, and had been given what was needed in all skill sets to execute a mission. So if I leave, who's going to fill the void here? Yeah, I got it. No void in leadership ever goes unfilled, et cetera, and so forth. But like, my wife's a strong woman. She's going to be okay for another couple weeks. Now, People listening and be like, what the hell are you talking about? How'd you stay in the mission? Oh, you just needed a distraction. No, it it really wasn't a distraction as much as it was finish what you came here to do so that you don't have regrets later. That was the idea. And I remember the day when the colonel pulled me aside in Kuwait and he could tell he's a freaking warrior. I love Greg Sturdivant, retired Marine Corps, two or three star. He said, how you doing, Rooster? I looked up at him like, I'm dumb, sir. I'm done. There's no problem. There'll be a 46, take you back to the ship, pulling into Bahrain in two days, commercial flight back. You're our advon. It's that easy. He just needed to get to a point as a leader where he saw that they did everything they could do and that I would have no regrets about leaving my brothers in theater. And that's what we achieved. But that works for me, Mark. Yeah, Go I mean, ahead, okay, Mark. so that's, Go I ahead. mean, 
I'm, I'm trying to process it all on my own and put myself in your shoes and wonder how I would react. Um, I understand the logic. But like you said, it's not for everybody. Um, and I'm not here in judgment of any of the decisions you've made by any stretch of the imagination. I just, my, my, my question is, that's, there's a lot of faith in letting your chain of command make that call. But like you said, you I guess to a certain extent, you okayed everything. Yeah, they were making sure along the way that I was comfortable with not getting on a plane today. And at certain points, it was operationally not really supportable. Right. And I got it. You can always get people out. You can always, like, you can do it. But, like, it was, like, the burden of putting this Marine, the, the burden of moving the Marine out of the, out of the theater would actually become a legit burden to the execution of the mission. Did your so wife th- ever say to you via phone, email, text, whatever, you need to be home. Like, I don't know what you're doing. Get home. The conversations that we had were very transparent. And they had everything to do with our faith in the chain of command, our faith in faith, and an ability for us to communicate about what was truly needed in that moment on that day, vice wanted. Don't get me wrong, bro. There were moments where I wanted to quit and go home and hug my wife. But she was supportive of me finishing the task or at least giving it the best effort that I could. Because again, bro, this was a diagnosis. This is a diagnosis we knew could come. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, by the way, your kid just got hit by a car. Right. It was a little bit different as I put a little context to it, but that doesn't take away the sting of no, your child's yeah. going to die. Right. But like, there was nothing that I could do on the couch next to her today that I couldn't do in one, two, three, or four weeks. And in hindsight, it was a blessing because it forced me to truly figure out how I wanted to cope with this. Like I needed to touch the spiritual. I needed to touch the physical. I needed to do relationships and conversations so that when I did get home to my wife, I could be the best version of myself that I, I knew I couldn't fix anything. But when I got there, I didn't need to, I didn't need to be a burden with my own shock and disappointment and like baggage that I was carrying. I needed to be the best version of myself for her and for my kids and for Ainsley. And so that's, I'll call it 30 days because it's a fog. It feels like it was 30 days from the phone call to the day that I hugged her. But that period was so much personal growth and reflection and going through the stages of grief to try to figure out exactly how we're going to go forward. So I'm grateful for that. And I think it, I don't want to, I don't want to make it a religious comment and say that it was his way. I'm not, I'm not doing that here in this moment, but it kind of feels like something bigger. I I mean, I guess at at the risk of asking a, a, you know, I don't think it's a foolish question, but you know, come on, let's dance. If, is there any sort of knowing that the time was finite, you know, was there any moment where now that you can't have one more day with her, you look back and said, I should have spent one more day with her, even if no. it was in, in a process of grieving or whatever, like it, there was never that, that, gotcha. that sort of reflection. Thank you for the question. Here's why I'm saying no with such like not even listening to you finish the question saying no, 
Because when I did get home from that deployment, they did send me to Virginia. I did become in a non-deployable status. My follow-on tour was a joint tour, the Joint Forces Staff College, teaching information operations to folks going through the Joint Forces Staff College curriculum to go do that. And then after that, I went to Marine Corps Forces Command to build curriculum. And then I closed my career out back at the Intel Schoolhouse as the XO for the, the Marine Corps uh, Training Center over there. So th- I had from 2007 until she passed in 2016, okay. nine years yeah. to immerse myself and my daughter right. and, and my other children and my wife and to heal um, and to travel together. So if anything, man, the Marine Corps and no, that's my look. No, <laughs> zero regrets about staying in theater an extra couple of weeks. Um, no, sure. I, I mean, it, it, Great question. I know the time, obviously, you know, is is a is a factor, or at least it's context in the whole thing, um, you know. But uh, yeah. it, it's just it's so precious, right? You know, when, when everything's finite, it, it, everything has more value and more magnitude. So, if you would have said yes, I wouldn't have thought any differently. I would have understood just the same. Um, when you did get back home from the deployment and you see your daughter for the first time, what was that experience? Everything you would imagine to be like just relief. Um, that's the one word, relief and uh, gratitude. And uh, maybe a little bit of belief that I could fix it. But then reflection back on the fact that you've come to terms with the, fa- the fact that you can't, which kind of became a driving factor in what we, what we did next as a family. Like there are, there's an option to jump into the, I want to find the cure for the rest of my life. I'm going to dedicate finding the cure to INET, which is a noble cause. Or I want to figure out how to live life to the fullest with her. And I'm grateful that we picked the second option. That we want to go out to eat. We're going to take her in a wheelchair. We're going to go out to eat. We're not going to care if Johnny or Susie or Mike are looking at us weird because she's in a wheelchair and she's drooling. We're going to go out to eat. And we're going to use that opportunity to enjoy the experience, even though we're eating food through our mouth at Olive Garden and we're hooking her up to a feeding tube and feeding her her insure at Olive Garden. What we're doing is we're living our best life together and we're enjoying it. And Susie's looking and she's staring and maybe she's snirking. This is an opportunity to educate. And that's what we did. I'd roll Ainsley over there. This is Ainsley. She'd like to tell you hello. And suddenly you could see people shift. They'd be like, Wow. I was like literally scared of this seven-year-old girl in a wheelchair who eats through a tube to her stomach. And now I'm seeing the beauty that is her humanity. So watching that happen was pretty special. I don't know how I just went down that road, but it's uh, I, I have no idea how I got there. Oh, we chose to live the life to the fullest, man. And so I was grateful. I was, I was relieved that I was there. And then the third piece was um, I was given an opportunity to not um, – to not choose to just focus on trying to fix it, which is hard for dudes. Dudes want to fix shit. Especially military dudes. Yeah. <laughs> We're very mission and goal oriented. So uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a finite end state for, for a lot of the things that we encounter. Um, yeah. When yeah. you finished out your career, I mean, did you get out because it was time to be out or was there was something with Ainsley, another driving factor? Like what was sort of the whole process of your, the ending of your career? All right. I didn't get out because there was time. In fact, my promotion to Lieutenant Colonel would have been the next day after my retirement. 
had I chosen to, you know, stay the course. Here's the answer to your question. The same passion and drive that I had as a Marine sergeant, as a Marine captain, at points in my career mixed in as a major, as a PFC, of being about being the best Marine that I can be, that passion, that drive, that oorah, esprit de corps, semper fi, do or die, that was starting to be replaced by this drive and passion and purpose to be an advocate for education in the realm of inclusion and diversity and ensuring that all people can be included in all things, specifically endurance events that Ainsley's Angels does, running and swimming, triathlons. Um, as I saw that passion shift, I started to realize the, the purpose. My purpose is no longer to try to become the national security advisor to the president, which was a goal at one point. It is now to become the best version of myself that I can be as a voice, as a pure executor every day for those that may not have the abilities or the gifts to communicate and influence that I feel like have been bestowed upon me. And I don't say that as a conceited person. I say that as a humble person who's not confusing the difference between arrogance and humility. I can influence, I can motivate, and I can inspire. And I can advocate and educate for those who need me to do that for them. And when I saw that passion shifting from wanting to fix the aviation intel community in the Marine Corps to wanting to be what I just described, I paid attention to it. And in paying attention to it, I realized when it was time to request retirement. Nobody objected? <laughs> there was a lot of objections. But, you know, that was that felt good to, to feel wanted. Um, I remember when the director of Marine Corps Intelligence was in my living room saying, Rooster, we make colonels. My job is to make colonels for the Marine Corps. Like, are you sure? And I, I shared with him what I just shared with you. And he goes, love you, love you. That's a wonderful ability to be able to see the truth and to be raw about it. And I was like, General, I, I am sincere that you're asking me to hang around and I would love to be a colonel. Love to be a general. But I only want to be a colonel and a general if I can be the best version of myself in doing so. I don't want to do it just because now I have an eagle. By the way, I think I saw that you've been selected for colonel. So congratulations. Thank you. I don't know if you've pinned it on yet or not. But no, it's like, a, little, I don't, a little bit of bureaucracy in that whole process. <laughs> okay. I don't mean to digress. I just mean to say that like I, I I'm the freaking president of my daughter's legacy, bro. Like I'm good. I don't I don't need another title. It's a pretty awesome title. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all about the growth mindset. It's all about how you choose to look at it. It's about just what makes you happy. And, and, and when you can find out what's making you happy, ask yourself, if that makes you happy, are you living that every day? Is that your drive? Is that your passion? What is your drive? What is your passion? And why are you not living it every day? That kind of mindset? Like I'm doing it every day. Like I wouldn't be able to have this meeting with you if I was an active duty Marine Lieutenant Colonel right. somewhere. Like I'm, I just had like amazing hour with you, my friend. I, I appreciate this, but I couldn't have had this flexibility. Go ahead. I was going to ask you what sort of skills mentally or otherwise did you get in the Marine Corps that have helped you through the grief of your daughter and continuing the legacy going forward? One word comes to mind, man, and it's really resiliency. And I think it needs to be defined. And I'm not just throwing it out there as a buzzword. When I say resiliency, I'm talking about 
the Marine Corps teaching me how to be self-aware. I think that's part of resiliency, right? The Marine Corps taught teaching me how to have a positive mental attitude. The Marine Corps exposing me to situations that required like positive psychology or you were going to find yourself underneath that rock feeling sorry for yourself and not being the best version of yourself. Ultimately, like optimism. And and I'm not going to I'm not saying that the Marine Corps teaches optimism, but the Marine Corps puts you in positions that once you figure out how to leverage optimism and how to believe in it and how to live a life of that is that is optimistic that you become that much more of a force multiplier. Yeah. And the, so the, the Marine Corps embracing optimism is the opposite of welcome to the suck. So, uh, you know, <laughs> it would be a little bit of a leap to say the Marine Corps embraces optimism. I, I hear you, but I will tell you at the same time that when we say welcome to the suck, that is us using our character strength of humor mm -hmm. to in turn say yeah. this sucks so bad that it's awesome. That's what we say. Is that sort of the, the same suck. mentality about, about Ainsley? Man, at times, yeah. That this is this is going to suck so bad to watch my daughter die. Call a spade a spade. That it's going to be awesome in the sense that there are opportunities if you choose to see them. Opportunities if you choose to see them. Not detriments, not burdens. Opportunities if you choose to see them that can make your life so much fuller. And it sucks that she's going to be the one that leaves before us and gives me this gift of opportunity well beyond anything I've ever freaking imagined. But at the same time, I'm freaking amazingly proud to have a daughter that I can be so proud about. I mean, what else do we want as parents but to be right. proud of our daughters? And she demonstrated resiliency, bro. Like she wouldn't quit. The do not complain campaign. She never complained. I don't know anybody else in the world who's never complained. Granted, she couldn't walk and she couldn't talk, but she never flipping complained. No matter how bad it sucked, she found a way to inspire just by her presence and her being. Come on. When you make the decision to create an organization like Ainsley's Angels, obviously it is on behalf of your daughter um, and that's the motivating factor beyond it. What, at what point does it or does it ever transition from memory of my daughter to look at all these other people that I've inspired, that I've helped, that have given opportunities to, or do those, are, are they always intertwined? I mean, I'm, I'm in an emotional space I'm not hundred percent familiar with. So, you know, I'm just trying to understand a little bit because you have affected so many other people positively. Um, and that's not taking away from the memory of your daughter or anything like that. But I just, uh, you know, sometimes organizations do so well at what they do, they take on a whole different life of their own, Right. Yeah, they do. Um, we've stayed true to our core. So when someone loses someone they love, if you don't have a, if you don't have any perspective, you may be hesitant to say their name because you don't want to spark memories of that person that causes the person to then be depressed. That is so far from reality. We want our loved ones' names to live forever and their legacy and their presence and their impact to live forever. So, Mark, they're intertwined because every day I say her name and every day hundreds of thousands of other people say her name. That is part of the legacy. 
It's part of the intertwined nature. They're wearing a shirt with their name on it. There's some art where she's on the sleeve. Like, there's not a single writer or caregiver that I know of in our family who hasn't taken just a moment to at least figure out who Ainsley is. So, like, they're learning about this young lady. I want those families to be happy because the dad or the uncle or the, the friend down the road pushed Johnny in a race. I don't, I don't need them to say we pushed for Ainsley's Angels and, and we're honoring Ainsley. No, it's none of that. But I know just by what they're doing that they're executing on what she inspired us to build, to honor her and to, and to do this mission. So I don't know if I answered your question, but like they're intertwined, I think is one of the options you gave me. And that's why. Anything about the Marine Corps you still miss? Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) I miss the opportunity to have these kind of conversations and, and to, to really, really get to know a brother or a sister on a level that, um, that that's more than surface deep, right. Um, to, to deep dive on some of the things that Marine Corps and, and military service and first responder service um, allows you to do because we've, we've had these rites of passages and now we need to kind of de- 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 deconstruct them and, and kind of figure out, break them down into smaller parts and build them back up. Um, I missed the opportunity to mentor the young Marines, right? As an XO on my last tour, I made it a point to talk to as many of them as possible as a company commander, same deal. And I just got approval this morning to actually go back to the place I retired from in 2018 to provide character does matter training on behalf of the Travis Mannion Foundation to the 17 to 19 year olds that are awaiting Intel training. So the same kid that was me in 1994 on Thanksgiving day, that's showing up there to nobody waiting to start training in January or February, I'm now going to get a chance to give them one to four sessions of like, if it's, if not me, then that, then who slash character slash, what does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to, to, to be honest? You know, so that's pretty special. Yeah. Um, and I, I miss that. But just today, last night, I got the approval to like go do that. So I'm, I, which is, I mean, come on, bro. It's the best of all the worlds to, 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 to put it all together and to, and to continue and have an impact on the shaping of, of the young people, you know. You've mentioned the Travis Mannion Foundation several times. Uh, how did you end up getting hooked up with them? And, and I'll let you tell us about the organization itself. Yeah. So, uh, the short, the short, the short answer on exposure is that Travis Mannion's niece is wheelchair bound and was at the starting line of the Marine Corps marathon where we're an official charity partner. And when we looked over and saw the chair she was using, it became clear to us, we need to get her a new chair. And so we worked directly with the family to get her a chair that she could use that, that was, you know, pink and fun and, um, you know, so she could love it. And then last year, uh, a friend of mine who, uh, shared some of his Travis Mannion experiences on social media, mentioned the Spartan Leadership Program and, and how, you know, if you're thinking about applying, at least look into it kind of thing. And I applied, was accepted and, and have jumped in uh, with both feet this past spring um, and am truly, truly touched by the way that the family of Travis Mannion is honoring his legacy. Um, and there's so many parallels. So, I mean, for me to, to, to be the president of Ainsley's legacy and for Ryan Mannion to be the president of her brother, Travis's legacy. Um, and now the opportunity to kind of bring these together with a couple of initiatives, um, that are forthcoming. Um, gosh, I mean, right. It's, it's special. And of course, Travis is a Marine, uh, Lieutenant who was killed on a second deployment to Iraq by a sniper, 
I was doing some of the uh, the MTT teams, you know, helping the transition to build the uh, Iraqi forces to be stronger and better. And he went to a Philadelphia Eagles football game with his brother-in-law and they were getting ready to leave the game. And uh, the brother-in-law, I think it's brother-in-law. He, he said, man, Travis, you know, I would just push you down these stairs, man. So maybe you'll hurt your ankle or your leg. And then you, you don't have to go back on this deployment to that, to that place again. And Travis just stopped and he looked at him. If you do that, then who's going to go? If not me, then who? I'm trained. I'm the right guy. I'm the person. And, and, and I'm who's going to go lead these folks and do this. So if I break my ankle, they got to fill somebody in this void who isn't trained and isn't right and isn't have the mindset. And it's going to create a burden. It's going to create, we're going to be weaker than we are today. And that's their ethos. And, and that reminds me of the same feeling I kind of had when we got Ainsley's diagnosis in, in 07. You know, if I leave, then who's going to fill the void? Let's at least figure out how to get to a point where somebody is trained and ready to fill the void over the course of the next few weeks. Vice just picked me up and I got it, man. Like we're, we're, we're going to evolve. We're going to adapt. We're going to overcome. But if you don't have to make it harder than it is, you know, then don't. But anyway, so Travis, that happened. Uh, he went, he deployed, he passed, he was shot. Um, and, and then um, uh, a Navy SEAL, last name Looney. Uh, who was his best friend at the Naval Academy, uh, he, he went on a subsequent deployment and was also uh, killed in combat. And um, today they're interned together at, at Arlington. Oh, and Ryan, the brother of Travis, and Amy, the wife of, of Mr. Looney, are essentially the driving forces behind the Travis Manion Foundation, which aims to bring veterans together with families of the fallen. And it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, and I'm grateful to be part of it. And I'm grateful for the way that there's so many ways that Angels Angels and Travis Manuel Foundation can work together. You know, a 2016 Forbes study said that nonprofits don't work together. And they gave some examples of it. And they said why. And they listed reasons. A lot of those things are e egotistic and bureaucratic and a chase for the dollar. Yep. I, we have a situation here to be a bright, shining example of how two nonprofits can can shape and influence and positively uh, change their communities, bridge some gaps. So I'm stoked. Thank you for asking. How do you know? Is Angelie's Angels ever finished? Like, <laughs> how do you know when you've done enough or when it's time to transition to something else? I mean, it's so, and I asked that question because I can somewhat relate. My cousin passed away uh, when he was 23 years old. He was a second-year law student at Brooklyn, had an accident and, and died. And, you know, my uncle had put together a golf tournament and a charity, a scholarship for him and everything else. And then after, you know, several years, it just stopped. Like, it was just enough, you know? I, I think it, as a parent, I think, I don't know if it was fatigue or it was just, I don't know if it was making an impact or it became too much work or whatever, but it just stopped. It, and And I think at some point, at least I understand that it's not that you've done enough. Maybe it's just time to do something different or the focus changes. Do you feel like that's ever somewhere down the road? So we're in our 10th year. And today I can tell you that the answer to your question is no, I don't see that down the road. And the reason I don't see that down the road is because every day I get to go on social media platforms and, and get emails and texts and, and see big, bright, smiling faces that otherwise would be waiting for their next medical appointment, yeah. their next treatment. These smiling faces, uh, even amidst the pandemic, 
have we have found ways to keep them actively engaged. Fred, for example, man, he's 97 years young and he's freaking putting his hat in the air and he's crossing the, the Marine Corps marathon finish line virtually in Texas. You know, like the same dude who had the tenacity to, to attack the hill in Iwo Jima is now demonstrating that. And that gives him freaking so much energy, right? And he's in his latter years. He, his mind's, you know, he's, he, I know in my heart that what we're doing is being executed so purely and it's having such an impact that it would be selfish for me to not continue to lead this charge. It's a gift, man. It's an opportunity, and, and I'm not going to piss it away. Instead, I'm going to build the infrastructure and the foundation so that it can continue to be so much bigger than any one of us. It needs to outlive. It will outlive. It shall outlive me. It's going to outlive you. <laughs> it's going to be around forever, man. And 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 you say... Well, maybe the mission gets accomplished. Maybe inclusion happens and everybody's welcome to be in endurance events. And I say, we're human, bro. You give me an example of us truly getting to diversity and inclusion right. acceptance across this country. <laughs> and I'll just right. stop there. We, we, in that case, the inclusion diversity business, is uh, it'll never be finished. We've got a long way to go. Uh, there you go. So that said. But no, I, I, listen, I, I, I love the the, you know, ferocity with which, you know, this is all still very much alive for you. Um, it's, it's palpable, you know, and it's, it's more than that. It's contagious, right? It's intense, but it's contagious. Um, and, and I I think it's, you know, that spirit is, is, I I think part of that's the Marine in you, but also I think it's just the, the immense love that you have for your daughter and your family and, and all of this coming together in sort of a perfect storm that is now Ainsley's angels on, on a routine basis. So, yeah. Um, it's incredible. Um, where can people get more information about Ainsley's Angels? And Ainsley'sAngels.org is our website. It's It's got everything you need. In the top right corner, there's a button you can press on, join the family, come and roll with us or run, uh, volunteer. And of course, we're on all the social medias, you know, uh, Instagram, YouTube. Got a lot of videos on YouTube that capture what we do, but also some motivational. So it would, I digress for a minute to say, Three weeks before Ainsley passed away, I had this just thing that came over me and said, you know what? Grab your phone and just start talking. Just start talking and then just upload it. And it was a word that came to me. Patience, right? After she passed away, I continued to do that as the words came to me. And it became my way to actively grieve. And then I didn't edit it. I just put it on the YouTube and I called it weekly word. And now it's up to like 158 episodes in the past four years. And I have those forever documented so that my triple great grandkids, assuming YouTube doesn't crash, can see what did what did old rooster think about, you know, the idea of meaning or the idea of purpose or courage or forgiveness. It's there forever documented. And so that became my active grieving role. And that's on our YouTube channel. Of course, I digressed to share that. But I come back to answering your question, our website. And all the social webs, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. I ask this question a lot in a military mindset, but I'll, I'll ask it now as it personally pertains to you. Um, is there anything that Rooster now would tell Rooster bef- the day before Ainsley is born that you wish you had known or could have known or maybe possibly would have made any of this slightly easier to, to comprehend and deal with. I'm never lost for words. I don't know how to answer that. I don't, I, 
Wow. Um, Mark, I don't know. I mean, anything about the grieving itself? Like, could you have could you have made the grieving process easier on yourself? Because that can drag out for a while, right? Like you said, your wife grieved differently than you did. Did did, did, was there a point where she helped you along the way, or you helped her along the way? How does that whole transaction go? I appreciate that question. So that's I love the way you frame that. So. The answer is that we are going to grieve for the rest of our lives. Right. I don't think it's ever going to end. And whether that's every day or every hour, or every week or every month, just depends on how you need to heal. I don't think you ever get fully healed. I think that we have this opportunity, though, to leverage the energy that was that experience. I found my healing and courage through optimism and positivity. My wife on the other hand, and I don't want to completely speak for her in a public forum here, but she didn't take that approach. Um, she was my, she was Ainsley's caregiver 24 seven. Right. The feeling that we have some of us when we retire from the military and we take away that thing that is defines us, how do we go on? There's so many stories about military veterans who have retired and then passed away in the next five years, whether it's to their, their there's so many reasons why. But a lot of it has to do is they lost their they lost their sense of purpose and their sense of belonging. My wife, on the day that Ainsley died, February 23rd, 2016, lost her sense of purpose. And there were many times where she said, if it wasn't for these two other kids, I wouldn't be here. Which is essentially what? A comment of suicide, a cry for help, just a statement? I don't know. We're taught in the Marine Corps. You got to take those kind of comments seriously. And as I deep dove, I realized... I wouldn't want her to kill herself or to find herself. I don't, I don't want her to go away. Right. But like the first thought I had was selfish. Like what the hell you mean? If it wasn't for these other two kids, you wouldn't be here. What about me? And then I realized her comment isn't about me. Her comment is about her and how she lost her sense of purpose, her sense of freaking meaning. And I had to understand that and reflect upon that. So I guess I give you that to say, maybe if I could go back to the day before Ainsley was born, maybe I would want myself to understand that it's not about you all the time. It's not about you all the time. And so let Ainsley teach you more ways so that you can understand that it's not about you all the time. Well said. Well said. I mean, it's <laughs> there's been so much to kind of digest in all this. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot. That's okay. Dogs are people too, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, there's been so much to digest and all. I mean, how often do you have to do self checks on yourself to figure out where you are? My God, I love that. Um, when we went out to to the Crooked Butterfly Ranch with Tosh, you mm-hmm. know, he talked about check ins, and he talked about how you need to schedule those things sometimes. And so I'm get, I've gotten to a point based on kind of what he said, where it forced me to reflect on exactly the question you just answered. How often, how often am I checking in? Hey, Rock, how often, how often am I checking in? Rocky wants to tell you that I'm checking <laughs> enough. Um, anyway, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm trying to do it at least weekly. And I think that when I do these weekly words, it's an opportunity for me to self self check and to reflect on a word and how it impacts me. Um, and, and also, one of the things Tosh said that I really loved was he said, uh, you know, hey, are you checking in 
with yourself to ensure that you're not just drinking your damn Kool-Aid and drinking your bullshit and realizing that like you truly believe in your core, that what you're spitting is what you're living and what you believe. And I'm like, man, that's freaking huge. And I can tell you that, yeah, what I spit and what I do and what I preach and what I live is who I am in my core. But you asked me 10 minutes ago about when does Ainsley's Angels end and what's that look like? And do you ever get to a point where you need to go do something else? Um, and that's a great question because it, I got to reflect on that and figure that out. And I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose sight of it. The same way my passion for being a Marine shifted to my passion and purpose for Ainsley's Angels. I, I, maybe there is a third thing and I can't be so blind or myopic that I fail to check in and figure out where that is. So a long ass answer to say, I'm, I, I, I'm going to do it weekly and, and I'm letting, I'm letting him get to me. <laughs> I'm letting him get to me, um, which is unfair uh, to him because it's not about me, right? Well, on that note, um, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us. Uh, incredibly tough. Um, and I know that it's both tough to share, but it's also cathartic because um, anytime yeah. you're speaking about her, there's there's that pain of loss, but there's also that joy of, of you know, look at my angel, look at my baby and and, and remembering everything about her. So, I know this can never be easy, but I certainly appreciate everything about your journey, uh, both of the Marine Corps and as a parent. Um, again, AinsleysAngels.org uh, is the place to go. Donate if you can. And uh, the Travis Mannion Foundation, also another you know organization. You've done so much for so many people. Um, and, and again, I, I'm just I'm, I'm literally just a, a, in awe of what you've turned as such a bad situation into. Right. Because um, that, that's that's always the hardest part. Uh, wallowing is easy and, and asking why me is easy and, and all those things. But you've definitely chosen a harder path um, and, and made it something positive for, for many others. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. And uh, grateful for this opportunity. I, again, I said it earlier and I say it again. Y'all are doing great things by bringing together all of us from across the country to share these stories, man. It is cathartic. And there's some power in that, in that, in that journey. So I said at the beginning, let's dance. And, and now I say, uh, I look forward to our next dance. We've got to figure out a way to do it again. So. Absolutely. So Kim Rooster Rossiter, thank you so much for being part of the hazard ground. Thanks brother. You've been listening to kill cliffs hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.